So the last uh, couple of weeks, I've been um, working with a group of students. I'm teaching a theology course for a university in New Zealand. And, um, you know, I've been just kind of thinking a lot about theology and why theology matters and teaching the Bible and things. And I'm doing this other class. So one class is for like theology students and this other class is for a group of people who, um, you know, could be in any place in life, but they just want to become a little bit more um, trained with the Bible. And so we've been, so I'm teaching these two classes and one's like more academic and then one is kind of for just normal people. And one thing that's really been interesting is we've been talking about about leadership and and church and how um, challenging church can be. Like church can be really challenging, I think. Because there's people here, right? It's like, it's real. I do really good by myself, like spiritually. And then as soon as you put me in a room with other people, it just seems like it becomes more challenging, right? You guys ever noticed this? Like, you know, like church was great until other people came, right? And, and but I remember as I was talking to these students, because one, the, one of the students really wants to become a pastor in this other group of, I'm working with. And I was telling him how when I first started pastoring, there, there really were two goals. Because I grew up in church. I've been in church my whole life. I know how church can be. And I, I've, I've had two goals since the minute I started in ministry. I wanted to end my life loving Jesus as much as I did then. And the second thing is I want to love the church as well. And the first one's pretty easy, I think. Second one, challenging challenging. If you've been in church for a long time or for a little bit of time, you know how challenging that can be. And and so while that's true, here's an interesting thing that I've observed about church. Um, I've I've seen this over the years where people will go to one church and then when something happens, they'll go to another church. And oftentimes they go to a church that's like believes the exact opposite of the church that they went to before. Have you ever noticed that? Like, Like, let me give you an example. So like our church believes in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, meaning we don't believe that the Holy Spirit um, stopped doing miraculous things at the end of the first century. Like, I think the gift of healing, God still heals people, amen? I believe that with all of my heart. We pray for that. We see that miraculous things can still happen. And there's other churches that don't believe that. And so it's interesting to me that people will go to a church that believe that, and then they'll start going to another church that doesn't believe in any of those things. I find that fascinating. So I've been thinking about, like, why is that? Well, I mean, just think about these questions here. Two questions. Why do people start going to a church, visit a church? Like, why do they do that? Seriously, anybody, give me, give me an answer. Why do people visit a church for the first time? They need help, okay. They felt led by God. Wow, they are very spiritual people. I like it. Okay, what else? They're seeking. They want something different, like to see you and your muscles, maybe. Bro, put a shirt on more often, Yeah. I'm sick and tired of looking at your muscles all the time. You're making me feel insecure. Uh, what else? <laughs> yeah, come as you are, except for you need to have a shirt. All right. What else? What are some other reasons why people might? Coffee. Donuts. They were invited. A lot of different reasons. Okay, here's another question. They come for healing. That's good. Why do people stay in church? Community and they feel loved. Those are good. Yeah relationship. I think I'm convinced of it. People are in church for, I mean, what keeps them grounded and connected is relationship. And and I'm really, I just want to kind of just take a moment here before we jump into today's sermon, just to tell you how this last couple of weeks, I've been really reflecting on these things. And I just have to tell you like, Don, I'm speaking for Don and I, we are 
so grateful for this church community. Like, love it. Love it. We just really feel like this is our family. And Don and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about how Don said to me, she said, um, she said, I've never had more women in my life who love me and are supportive of me and are like spiritual mothers to me ever in my life. And I was like, yeah, that's good. By the way, that's good, just to be clear. It's a positive thing. Some of you are like, dang. And, and I just felt the same way yesterday at this men's, men's uh, breakfast we were having. Um, Anthony, I'm going to embarrass you. Stand up really quick. Come on. That guy right there. Okay. That is our, he's, he is just killing it. I mean, he's just organized and so not like me. <laughs> and has plans and <clears throat> I'm just like, oh man. But just watching him yesterday sharing, I was just so moved because I felt community yesterday. Like I felt like I was with a bunch of men who, who love me and who, who, are, who are family. Bill Knight, who I think is here probably somewhere over there. I don't even know. Is he here? He was here earlier. He already left. He heard I was preaching and he left. Okay, cool. Bill Knight, Bill Knight, every single time a new man walks into uh, our men's breakfast, Bill Knight does everything he can to make them feel welcomed and encourages them and loves on them. And I just, like, I've been overwhelmed in many ways the last few weeks because I just, I feel like God is doing something unique in our community because we're not, we're, we're really wanting to be a community of people who, who are taking seriously this idea of family and community. Amen? Because those words ma- matter. And so, like, the whole idea of just being a part of a church and looky-loo, sit in the back, chill, watch things, and take off might be where you're at. And that's no judgment, but I just want to tell you, I think there's so much more. And when you start going through really challenging situations in life, that's when it starts to test that. And it, it kind of reveals our need to have, have relationships. And that's what I think keeps people in, in community. And so I want to say a couple things. Um, first of all, just on behalf of Don and I, we just, we love you. We're so grateful. Like we are, you know, we love Red Bluff. We want to be here forever we plan on being here until I can't cast a fly rod anymore. <laughs> I mean, open a Bible. I'm so sorry. I got. Um, and we really do love just the community aspect. It's, it's, we're grateful for that, and and we want more of that. And we want to encourage you. And I want to just I want to just nudge you a little bit. Like if you're on the outskirts, or you know you you don't really know your place, or you don't have a sense of of where you fit, I mean, that's really the stuff that I love talking about. And so if you just have those questions and you want to kind of figure out the next, the next step for you, Don and I would love to get together with you. I'm just saying that for her and I. And then today, um, you know, we, we just want to let you know we have a newcomer's lunch today, right after service. And, um, and we were joking with some people who have been at the vineyard for five years, and they're like, I never came to one of those. Guess what? Everybody is welcome to come today. All right, if you've never come to a newcomer's gathering, I'd love to invite you to stay. We've got sandwiches, we've got food, and we got a box of, of uh, cream puffs that I will be eating. That's my lunch today. And yeah, exactly, I call five. Uh, but please stay. It's going to be right after service, and we have childcare. My 
my 11-year-old son and his friend are doing childcare. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, ain't it? I tell jokes for a living. Yeah, it's going to be bad. But here's the point is I'd love to encourage you to stay. Just just hang out and we're going to talk a little bit about our mission, our vision, and then just share a little bit about our story as a church. And if you are here and you brought a friend and maybe they don't feel comfortable coming, you are more than welcome to stay too because we have plenty of food. We just don't have enough cream puffs for everybody. Okay, so let's pray and then we're going to jump into today's message. So, Father, Lord, I am grateful for this community. I'm grateful for for you, Jesus. Though, Lord, um, life can be challenging and we can have really hard obstacles in front of us and we can feel alone, I believe when I survey the days of my life, when I think about the way you have worked throughout history, I believe with all of my heart that though I may feel alone and though others may have felt alone, we are not alone. We have you. In your grace, in your mercy, in your love, in your truth, which sets us free, is, is always available to us. And I'm reminded of that scripture in James when James writes that if any of us lack wisdom, we can ask of you and you will give it to us generously. And so, Lord, there are many in this room who need more of your grace, more of your mercy, more of your love, more of your truth, and more of your wisdom. And then, Lord, we also need hope. We need more hope. Many of us need to see more light at the end of the tunnel. And so my prayer is for you, Holy Spirit, to this morning give those things where those things are needed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope is an interesting thing. You know, because I think if you if you really reflect on, on hope, I think if you read the Bible, you'll notice that there's this call for us to have hope all over the place. I mean, I was just kind of flipping through the Psalms, and it's like all over the place. And Paul talks about it a lot in the New Testament. And so hope is, is definitely an important um, characteristic and quality uh, of the New Testament. But I've been thinking, like, what is hope? You know, sometimes I think we get, we get you know, our modern definitions that we get from the world into the way that we frame things. And so I want to provide just a quick a quick definition for us on how I think of hope based off of the Bible. And this is what one theologian writes. This is a little, little thick, but this is how we can think about the term hope. He says, the biblical term referring to the expectation of the believer that God will fulfill promises made in the past. Listen to that. The expectation of us that God will fulfill promises made in the past. Biblical hope is more than a simple wish. It entails certainty based on God's demonstration of faithfulness to people in the history of salvation as recorded in the scriptures and as experienced by the church. Ultimately, the Christian's future hope lies in the promise of Christ's return and the anticipation of resurrection from the dead. 
all over the Bible will read about hope. I mean, I'm not kidding. You can just go to the end of your Bible in the concordance and look up the word hope, and there will be a plethora of verses. The psalmist um, encourages us over and over again to daily put our hope in the Lord. And, you know, when you look at the minor and major prophets, every one of those prophets describes having hope in the future when God would, would, would make everything right, when his kingdom would come, when the fullness of time would happen. And then when you get to the New Testament, um, we have Paul and others telling us that we can have hope because we've been given the Holy Spirit. All followers of Jesus actually have been given the indwelling presence of God. So all over the Bible, we are encouraged to find and to have hope. To find and to have hope, which means we need to seek after it, cling to it, and hold it close to our hearts. Now, we've been in this sermon series that we're calling A Meal with Jesus. And what we've been doing is we're working through the Gospel of Luke. We're not doing verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're looking at some of the primary main stories in this gospel to really see how Jesus carries out his mission around the table. And we're seeing that the way that Jesus carries out his mission and brings the kingdom of God into the world is around meals. And it's very fascinating because it helps us see that we can do the same thing. And I think it's been pretty easy up until this point to see how meals extend grace and community. We see that Jesus, by who he eats with, what he's doing is he's saying, I want to give you grace. Even though you're on the outskirts of society, I want to bring you in. I want to love on you. I want to include you in my circle. I want to break down barriers. Even though you are on the outskirts of the culture and the society I'm in, I want you to come to know me. And we saw last week that people Sinners are eager to, to experience that grace. But this morning, I want us to think about how meals might give people hope. They might give us hope. And we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke again, chapter 9, verses 7 through 20. And this is what we read. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. I love that. Because sometimes when I see what Jesus is doing, I am puzzled as well. (laughs) He was puzzled. Some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Others thought Jesus was Elijah or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. I beheaded John, Herod said. So who is this man about whom I hear such stories? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned... Parenthetical pause. What had just happened is Jesus had just taken his 12 disciples and sent them out two by two to go out and to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick and to do miraculous things. Okay, So when the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. Then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to him and said, Send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There is nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. 
Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. Pause again. If there's 5,000 men, there were women and there were lots of kids. Okay? Lots of people. Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. One day, Jesus, by the way, there will not be leftovers of, of those cream puffs. I just want to be very clear. So, bless it, Lord. Okay, one day Jesus left the crowds to play, pray alone. Only his, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some people say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah sent from God. You are the Messiah sent from God. This is the question that I think we really need to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? What I want to do for just a few minutes here is I want to kind of mine for what I would call messianic gold from the Old Testament. Because this passage of scripture is rich with these themes from the Old Testament. So really quick, if you are new to the church, new to the Bible... The Bible has 66 different books in it. Part of it is called the Old Testament, and part of it's called the New Testament. The Old Testament primarily tells the story of Israel and leads up to Jesus, and the New Testament is the story about Jesus and how the church continues to expand. So we're going to look at this passage from Luke 9, which is part of the New Testament in the Gospels, but we have to kind of consider some of the Old Testament. How many of you heard the word Elijah? Right? There was this, this name that was dropped. And so we need to kind of ask that. Now, if you were paying attention, you will know that King Herod asked this question. In the very beginning, he says, who is this guy? Who is this, this Jesus guy? And this question had many people asking and trying to figure out who Jesus was at this time. I mean, some of the people we saw think that, it's a, that Jesus is a resurrected Moses. Others, others think that Jesus is a resurrected Elijah or Elisha. And some think that he just must be one of the prophets prophets of old. And I really think that this is probably the big question of all human life. Who is Jesus? It's the most important question, in my opinion, that you will ever wrestle with. All other questions that are important are important, but none are as important as us really wrestling with the question of, who is Jesus? How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? Anybody? C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And he was a prolific author, wrote tons of stories. And he also was kind of a lay theologian. Um, and he wrote a book called Mere Christianity, which back in the, in the 20th century was probably one of the best explanations for believing in Christianity, a Christian worldview. But what happened for him is he was, a, he was studying um, the stories of the Bible, trying to wrestle with who Jesus was. How many of you in this room, just really quickly, have done that? You've wrestled with, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that people talk about? I'm so glad five of you have wrestled with that question. Maybe six will get there today. We wrestle with these questions, and this is what happens as C.S. Lewis is wrestling with these stories. 
And he comes to this place of the, the trilemma, the C.S. Lewis trilemma. And what he, what he figures after reading all the Gospels is there's only three possible responses or answers to the question of who is Jesus. Number one, Jesus is either a liar. Number two, he's a lunatic or he's Lord. It's one of those three. And when you read the Gospels, if you ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll, you'll have to wrestle with those same questions. Who is Jesus? And that's what's happening here. So when that question is asked, who is Jesus? Jesus himself looks at Peter and says, who do you say I am? And Peter declares, you are the Messiah, the one who is sent from God. And Messiah is this Jewish term. Christ is the, is the Greek term for that. It means the same, it's the same word, essentially, two different languages, but it simply means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one who is fulfilling all the promises from the Old Testament. Jesus is embodying hope in his life and ministry. Now, really quickly, this is um, important for us. How many of you know how many Gospels there are? Just out of curiosity. Anybody? There's four. Can anybody name them? Okay. Okay, start with number one. What's number one? Matthew. What's number two? Which is the best one? I like it. I like it. I see that. I see that. What's number four? John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what's what's crazy about these four gospels is, is they they all are telling the same story, but from different perspectives. And so you have Matthew telling the perspective of Jesus' life from this Jewish background, and that's why Matthew has all this rich, it's steeped in Old Testament quotes and, and prophecies, and it's very Jewish in its, in its characteristics. And then you have Mark, and Mark is just a, a common book. It's written for basically anybody. That's why I always tell people, if you want to start reading the Gospels and you're not a Jewish person who's steeped in the Old Testament, Mark's a great place to start. 16 chapters, short, sweet. How many of you like short and sweet? Yeah the highlight reel. And then you have, you have Luke, and Luke is a, a, he's a, he's doing theology throughout it like all the others, but he comes from a background as a, as a doctor, and it's very technical, and he has all these, these little, little insights to help you understand the historicity and the trustworthiness of his, of his gospel. And then we have John, and John is like just deeper than deep, deeper than deep. But what's interesting is that in, God, in the Gospel of Mark, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels are, are telling the story of Jesus, and each one of them has different perspectives going on and trying to help you see little things about Jesus that the other Gospel writers might not have articulated. Mark answers this question. He designs his Gospel to answer the question of who is Jesus around one particular event, and it's this man who is healed from being blind. So Mark is trying to say, hey, when, when God awakens your eyes and opens your eyes, you will see Jesus as the Christ. But Luke, it's very interesting. Luke here decides to answer this question around a meal. And we've already seen that all over the place, Jesus is always revealed around a meal. As theologians have said in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or he's leaving a meal. And that is why we have Jesus acknowledging that people said that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And so here we are in this text, and we have this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 plus people. 
and it gives us a clue to who Jesus is. And that's what I want to dive into for just a moment. Who is Jesus? Number one, Jesus is a new Moses. Now, if you know the story of Moses, really quickly, Israel is in slavery. They're in the country of? Okay, this is good. We're getting somewhere. Egypt, they're in slavery. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Moses is raised up and he frees the people of, of Israel out of Egypt and they get, they get um, delivered, right? There's all these plagues, they get rescued. And then in the wilderness, what does God do? He provides manna for the people of Israel. So Jesus in this passage, I think Luke is setting us up to see that he is the new Moses who is leading the people of God into a new exodus He's rescuing the people of God out of sin and out of death. Secondly, we see that Jesus is a new Elijah and a new Elisha. In the Old Testament, these two prophets also are able to miraculously provide uh, food when it is needed. And so Jesus is also showing all of the people when, they, when they're fed by these, these fish and these loaves that he is not only the new Moses, he's also the new Elijah and Elisha. But this third thing is probably, I think, the most helpful for us as non-Jewish people. I think Jesus is showing us here that this is the beginning of the Messianic banquet. And, and this is important for us, okay? About 800 years before Jesus uh, was on the scene, the prophet Isaiah told of a future time that would be full of feasting. This is what prophet Isaiah said. He said, in Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and a choice meat. There he will remove the clouds of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. Amen? Forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people the Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. This is what Jesus is doing here in this passage in Luke 9. is He's trying to tell all the people that have come to hear him who are all Jewish people, he's trying to say, hey, listen, there have been all these promises made in the past thousands of years of our people's history. And you all have this hope and this anticipation that one day God is going to make everything okay. Guess what? I am he and I am here to start the beginning of this new creation. And that's one of the beautiful things that's happened in this story is that all of the people who would have seen this would have understood that they should have more hope. They should have more hope. And I don't know about you, but it seems like we go through these cycles of being able to trust God and remember the things that he's done to then like going through seasons where we forget that God's done that and we feel like we're all alone. Or is that just me? Like, have you ever noticed that? Like, I feel like I'm a manic depressant sometimes, for real, because I'm like, I'm like one minute, I'm like, oh, I'm so thankful for God. He's such a great provider. And then like 32 seconds later, I'm like, I am so alone. No one loves me. <laughs> you know, and then my, it's, my kids tell me I'm a pick-me boy. So I'm like, I just want you to pick me, kids. Just love me. Just love me. 
But in reality, I think that's true about all of us. What we do is we struggle with remembering the promises that God's, God's made and remembering that God has met many of those promises over and over again through our history. And I've been listening to different people in our church community the last couple of weeks, and I've heard them tell me stories of God doing these amazing things in life. Yesterday, we sat around this table, and all these men told stories of God doing miraculous things in their lives, just for like an hour and a half as I was eating burritos. It was amazing. So here's the application for us this morning. Jesus provides, I think, for us and through us in mission. You know, this whole story in John chapter or in Luke chapter 9, this whole story is really about a couple of things. It's about who Jesus is, but it's also about the fact that the disciples who are with Jesus are unable to provide, and yet Jesus is able to provide. So the, the story ends uh, with this particular statement where they walk away with 12 extra baskets of leftovers, a reminder that Jesus always provides. Jesus simply asks us to use the resources that we have and to have faith in him and he will do the rest. We, I think, as followers of Jesus need to essentially develop a theology of leftovers. We need to trust that God is going to provide and do great things. I'm going to end with this. Um, A number of years ago, I go to Kenya. It's like, I think, the second or third time I've gone there. And And I bring a family member, and I brought one of my daughters, and we go, and we had this team of people, and we had gathered up and purchased and bought a ton of different um, VBS materials, like games and coloring books and all that type of stuff. Like, just, we had suitcases full. And we had enough for, like, 150 kids. We were like, man, we are going to give these kids the best VBS ever. And my job was really easy. I was just supposed to give them bubble gum. And I had like 10 million pieces of bubblegum. So I'm like equipped. And so we get there and we find out that we're not only doing one VBS, we're going to be doing VBSs at like six different orphanages. And there's like a thousand kids. We're like, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? So we're just sitting around praying and we're like, well, we can't really purchase any of these things that we need here. And so somebody in the group, um, says, hey, I think we should just pray for God to miraculously provide, like with the 5,000 people who needed to eat. And it was said in like an offhanded comment, like joking, like, ha ha, obviously Jesus doesn't do that anymore. Like, all right. So we actually prayed. And at the end of this week, we had given stuff away to all of those kids. And it was amazing because if you've ever seen a, like a magician or a magic show, have you ever seen that suitcase that they just keep pulling stuff out of? Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about? That's what it was like. It was like we just kept, it, like the suitcase just kept having stuff to the point where after we were done and we were leaving, we were able to leave the suitcase that still had tons of stuff in it. And all these kids had all of these things. And so I'm going to tell you right now that you would be shocked and surprised at how when you take the risk to say yes to Jesus and you're willing to give away what you have, how often Jesus will multiply that for the sake of his mission to help people experience his presence, his power, and his love. Let's stand up together.